why would no one date these guys with Naomi and Joel Guy? A podcast <laughs> run by the two buffest siblings in North America. Alpha, 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 alpha. Say it with me. Alpha, beta, beta, alpha, beta, alpha. beta. Uh, well, Naomi, this is a, a full week after our last recording session. This is the Gift of Fear Part 2. The Queen we has died. Yeah, the Queen's died. We, we definitely aren't recording it the same day. Um, I think this is probably going to be dropping like February 21st or so. Solid. Uh, so, yeah, the new Batman movie has leaked online. <laughs> we're not discussing last week. Um, anything you were really surprised by I personally was shocked when in the theater (laughs) Batman takes his mask off for the first time and it's fucking Tom Holland now they tricked us in all these trailers by having Robert Pattinson turns out he's actually Alfred I would not oh, have seen that coming. Oh my god! Wait, so you're—I haven't seen it yet. You haven't so seen you're it. So te- you're—no, no, no. You're telling me that in the same universe, Spider-Man. This is a spoiler alert. Cover your ears right now if you haven't seen the new Spider-Man movie. You're telling me that in the same universe, everybody forgets who Spider-Man is, and then he becomes Batman. I don't think it's in the MCU. Oh! Yeah. But what is weird, it is in the same universe as the Uncharted movie that (laughs) came out recently, I think. I don't know when that movie's coming out. So the fact that a rich kid is both like this world-renowned adventurer and Batman. Yeah. And the guy, the vampire from Twilight's is Butler. Crazy. Completely new take on Batman. On a serious note, I can't imagine seeing Robert Pattinson as Batman. I'm just going to think of him as Edward Collins, and I'm going to expect him every time he's in the fucking like daylight. I'm going to expect him to glow. Okay, he was amazing in the Twilight, where he's uh, Edward Cullen. Cullen. Did I say Twilight? I really meant the Lighthouse. (laughs) They're the same movie. Just one's a rewrite, page one. Uh, but shot for shot, the movies are nearly identical. Great in the Lighthouse, uh, where he plays a, a lighthouse keeper slowly going insane on a desolated island. And phenomenal in Cosmopolis, where he plays an angsty tech billionaire traveling across New York over the course of a day to get a haircut. Um, and those are the only two movies I've seen him in. And so he's going to be great as Batman. <laughs> <laughs> he has the the going crazy part and the billionaire part nailed. Yeah. Okay, so we've spent two and a half minutes attempting humor, <laughs> and I don't think it's worked out. Um, Naomi, We're making how about we try up. our drink for the week? Yeah, it's Trader Joe's Organic King Coconut Water. It comes with a paper straw. We didn't like it, so we got our own straws. King Coconut Water comes from a variety of coconut unique to the island nation of Sri Lanka. It is a delicious and refreshing beverage for, be- for best flavor served chilled. It's we keep, so bad. It keeps, we keep not shaking the things that we're, that we're drinking. That won't save it. Oh, it's so, oh. It's like, it's like a filtered coconut water with no, like, actual sugar in it. That's what it tastes like to me. It It's moldy sock tea all over again. I don't like coconut water. Why did I buy I this? I love coconut water. I like fresh I like, coconut water I li- from a yes, coconut. Yes, that's what I like. Not this yeah. stuff that's been sterilized and kept in containers for 10 it years. It tastes like, no, no, no. It. it tastes like if you put coconut water into a condom to depulp it. You say a condom? Yeah. 
Because it has like a it has like a latex Condoms taste aren't to it. Filtered, Naomi. It has like a latex. No, no, what I'm saying is like you put a, poke a hole in it, oh, and that's okay. how you depulp it. Is you it just squeeze. This isn't how you use condoms. <laughs> Please don't come to us for condom related advice. Um, uh, Naomi, this is 2020. Too much fun. Yes, it's the year of living life to the fullest, yes. doing things you like. What have you been doing? Okay, well, some of my goals this year mentioned in an episode before. We talked about goals of 2022, but our main goal this year was to um, eat all the good foods and burn all the candles that we wouldn't usually burn drink all the wine that we wouldn't usually drink um i have been um having a successful year trying new recipes um i actually um my boyfriend made me pork chops last week it was so good we've gotten into cooking together he even got me an apron it's like a really nice apron too and um he uh made pork chops with like a balsamic orange glaze it's so good oh my god you have to try it um, but yeah, I've been, uh, cooking a lot more and I've also been drinking a lot more wine. I was telling Joel, um, this is an anecdotally that, um, I drunk ordered two pairs of shoes and I didn't realize until the next morning when I got a notification in my email account that I had two new pairs of shoes on the way. Simply incredible. Yep. I have never purchased anything when inebriated. I, you know, you aren't inebriated very often. A high score on a statistics test when inebriated. And that's Solid. <laughs> Yeah, the best score I got all semester was when I was a few drinks in. Um, was this an online test? This was. Oh, okay. Yes, it wasn't I in person? It wasn't 1130 <laughs> in the morning and I was still completely hungry. I didn't know if college Joel was different than employed Joel. Um, employed Joel is a lot less outgoing, <laughs> full of love in his heart for humanity. Um, for me, 2022 much fun. Um in the little free time I have, I've been alternating between two video games. Um, Doom Eternal, which is you're a big space marine guy who has to murder a lot of demons. And it's a very basic premise, but the skill ceiling is insanely high. And it's a very satisfying gameplay. And I got to say, I've played a lot of first person shooters. And there's like only four things you can kill without feeling bad. And that's demons, robots, zombies, and Nazis. (laughs) <laughs> and all of my favorite, like, shooter games involve, like, murdering one of those. Solid. Um, so, yeah, Doom Eternal I find quite enjoyable. It's it's a very fluid, fast-paced game. Gets my blood pressure up. And then the other one, which is the complete opposite, is Return of the Obra Dinn. And you are a guy investigating a ship which is mysteriously pulled into harbor. This is, like, the 19th century. Yeah. And everyone on board is dead. And you have a stopwatch which allows you to relive the last few moments of their lives. And you have to piece together first who all of the bodies on board are and then how they died. And scurvy. Who them. Uh, yes. It's, it's, it, you <laughs> it's just always scurvy. scurvy to everything. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any oranges anywhere on the ship. Exactly. No limes, no lemons, nothing, yeah. but it's very much the opposite of doom eternal. It is a, a thinker. Yeah. You, you put your thinking cap on and have to make logical deductions in a lot of cases. And it's very slow paced. Um, the Doom Eternal guy is probably like 10 times as fast when you're just wandering around the game world. But I find it enjoyable. It gives me a sense of satisfaction. And I'd recommend both games highly. But speaking of things I wouldn't recommend. Speaking of things. <laughs> Naomi, can you summarize the Gift of Fear part one, what we discussed in the last episode? Yeah, so we started going through Joel. His, uh doing a great job of summarizing went the straight Gift through of Fear Joel with a harpoon. by Gavin DeBecker. Um, if you want to know more about Gavin DeBecker and a good anecdote uh, referring back to Carrie Fisher and virginities, uh, listen to our first episode. That's going to make but, sense to anybody. Um, but um, then we'll... Uh, going right into it, we discussed um, intuition and how you should feed into your intuition, really listen to it, 
Um, we talked about issues um, with people not um, trusting the intuition of experts and they expect like more data and things. Um, we also talked about characteristics of um, people, uh, uh, potentially abusive people um, and um, things of that sort. So uh, criminal char- characteristics, uh, forcing teaming, charm and niceness, too many details, type casting, loan sharking, unsolicited promises, and discounting no. So um, if you want more information, obviously this episode will make absolutely no sense if you don't listen to the first one. Okay, it may make sense. It's very factual, but go and listen to the first episode for us. Uh, It'll make more sense. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so where we left off um, was where he was starting to get into a section on markers of violent behavior. Uh, We talked about some of the warning signals someone might give, which may or may not indicate that they're going to do you harm, just that they are self-interested and trying to manipulate you to their own ends. Um, But now the question is, how do you predict violence? How do you predict that someone has the potential to do violence to you? And he provides a couple of frameworks and ways of thinking about violence that I find very useful. And again, I'd reiterate, getting a copy of this book is probably in your best interest if you found it useful. So on page 88, he talks about the things that people care about. And he says that human behavior is predictable because so many people care about the same things. And if you've read a book like How to Win Friends and Influence People, you'll see a lot of these things brought up time and time again. The idea that humans have certain characteristics that you can use to your advantage and, you know, make friends, be charismatic, sell things, etc. So those things include the fact that individuals tend to seek connections with others, Individuals are saddened by loss and tend to avoid it. Individuals dislike rejection. Individuals like recognition and attention. Individuals will do more to avoid pain than they'll do to seek pleasure. Individuals dislike ridicule and embarrassment. Individuals care what others think of us. And individuals seek a degree of control over our lives. And he says, look, these assumptions are hardly groundbreaking, and though we might expect something more esoteric about people, these mundane concepts apply to most of them, just as they do to you. This list contains a few of the ingredients in the human recipe and how much of one ingredient or how little of another will influence the final result. With a man who goes on a shooting spree at work, it's not that he has some mysterious extra component or that he has necessarily something missing. It is usually the balance and interaction of the same ingredients that influence us all. Is he saying the shooting spree at work can be predicted in part by weighing the balance of factors as common as the eight general assumptions listed above? Yes. Certainly, there are hundreds of other variables that his office, again, Mr. DeBecker is kind of an expert who runs agencies that try to predict violence, and he could present them all with charts and graphs and templates and printouts. He could use psychiatric terms that require a psychiatrist to interpret, but the purpose here is to simplify, to identify in your experience the factors that matter most. So, uh, Robert Hare's insightful book, Without Conscience, identifies several other features of psychopathic individuals. These are people who can operate without listening to their consciences, and they do not care about the welfare of others, period. In the corporate boardroom, people might call it negligence. On the street, we might call it criminality. The ability to act in spite of conscience or empathy is one characteristic associated with psychopaths, and Robert Hare in his book describes a couple of others. Individuals who are psychopathic are glib and superficial, egocentric and grandiose, lacking remorse or guilt, deceitful and manipulative, impulsive, in need of excitement, lacking responsibility, and emotionally shallow. Many behaviors in predicting behavior come from the, many errors in predicting behavior come from the belief that others will perceive things as we do. The psychopath described above will not. To successfully predict his behavior, you must see a situation your way and his way. 
will be easy, of course, to see it your way. That's automatic. Seeing a situation from another person's perspective is an acquired skill, but you have already acquired it. Imagine that you're able to fire someone whose behavior, personality, and philosophy of life cannot be further from your own. Even with all the differences, you would still know if they'd viewed the firing as fair, completely unfair, part of a vendetta, or motivated by discrimination or greed. Particularly, if you worked closely with that person, you could recite his perception of events much as he would. Though you may not share his view, you can still bring it into focus. Predicting human behavior is really about recognizing the play from just a few lines of dialogue. It's about trusting that a character's behavior will be consistent with his perception of the situation. If the play is true to humanness, each act will follow along as it should, as it does in nature. So I've heard there's a test you can utilize to sort of understand if individuals, and by individuals I mean very young people, have sort of developed like self-awareness of how other people think. And what you do is you take a box, like let's say a box that might contain baseballs. And on the outside, it has like a bunch of pictures of baseballs and it says like baseballs. And in front of the child, you very deliberately put a basketball into the box and close it up. And you show it to the child. Without leaving the room, you just show this box that says baseballs on the outside and you have a basketball you've put in it. And you say, what do you think another person would think this box held if I just showed it to them. And the child, most often than not, more often than not, will say, a person who sees this box will think it contains a basketball. And the reason they say that is because they don't understand there are experiences outside of their own, and they don't understand that the situation they were just in, seeing someone put a basketball into a baseball box, is not a universal human experience. If you show this to an adult, you show a basketball that's been placed into a thing of baseballs and ask them what you think someone might perceive, they would say baseballs because they understand how other people think. They understand intuitively that if you see a box labeled baseballs, you're going to presume it has baseballs in it. So that's like a really simple example of like understanding human behavior and being able to perceive things from other people's perspective. In the same way, you know, if someone is unhappy or aggressive, it's worth asking, you know, what are the things that motivate them to be unhappy or aggressive? What are the common factors? And though it seemed like kind of a non sequitur, remember what I brought up with the general principles of human behavior. You know, we seek connection with others, we're saddened by loss, we dislike rejection, etc. If they're not getting one of those, if there's some aspect of the human condition that's not being achieved, it's very likely that's going to have an impact on their well-being, and that perhaps is manifested in anger or aggression. Food for thought. Um, so in the book Information Anxiety, he talks about this on page 93, Richard Saul Worman explains we recognize all things by the existence of their opposite. Day is distinguishable from night, failure from success, peace from war. We could also add safety from hazard. So an example he gives is when a woman is comfortable with a stranger in her home, for instance, someone delivering furniture, her comfort communicates uh, that she has already predicted he is not dangerous to her. Her intuition asked and answered several questions in order to complete that prediction. It evaluated favorable and unfavorable aspects of his behavior. Since we are more familiar with favorable behaviors, if you list them and then simply note their opposites, you will be predicting dangerousness. We call this the rule of opposites and it is a powerful predictive tool. Now let's talk about a contractor, Naomi. We've had contractors inside the house before who've yes. done a variety of work. And how do we predict their behavior? Well, we think about what a contractor is supposed to do. You know, a contractor is supposed to show up and do a job and leave. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, you know, they're independent contractors, so they want to get as many jobs done as possible throughout the day. 
Uh, they're not paid a salary. And so they want to show up, get the work done properly, and then leave as quickly as possible to get to the next job. So we would favorably say a good contractor does his job and no more. Unfavorably, we might find it weird if a contractor showed up, did the job, and then offered to help us on unrelated tasks. Because we sense that there's something off about that. Yes. A, a favorable person would be respectful of privacy. An unfavorable person would be someone who's curious and asks a lot of questions once they've shown up. A favorable impression would be someone who stands at an appropriate distance because they recognize they've entered someone's home and people have personal bubbles. An unfavorable person might stand a little too close. Other examples, a favorable individual waits to be escorted around, keeps his comments to the job at hand, is mindful of the time and works quickly, doesn't care if others are home, doesn't care if others are expected, doesn't pay undue attention to you. However, an unfavorable person would walk around the house freely, tries to get in discussions on other topics, makes personal comments, has no concern about the time, is in no hurry to leave, wants to know if others are home, wants to know if others are expected, and just stares at you. Ugh. Yeah. That. So all types of behavioral predictions, not just those about danger, can be improved by applying the rule of opposites. Just as we can predict behavior once we know the situation or context, we can also recognize the context by the behavior. A man insists on being first in the ticket line at the airport, looks frequently at his watch, appears exasperated by the slowness of the ticket agent. After getting his ticket, he runs awkwardly along, carrying his bags. He appears rushed and stressed. He looks expectantly at each gate as he approaches. Is he A, a politician seeking votes who will stop and chat with each passerby, B, a charity volunteer who will solicit donations, or C, a person who's late for his flight? I'm going to guess C. That's fair. Now, you could be an incorrect... But at the same time, in 99% of situations, that would be a fair assessment of the situation. A hostile employee is fired the day he returns from a leave of absence. He refuses to vacate the building. He tells his supervisor, you haven't heard the last of me, and then says, I'll be visiting you with my buddies, Smith and Wesson. Security guards are called to remove him, and the following morning, the supervisor's car windshield is smashed. Is this fired employee likely to A, send a check for a pair of the windshield, B, enroll the next day in medical school, or C, start making late-night hang-up calls to the supervisor's home. I'm going to say C again. A couple of days after the man is fired, his supervisor finds a dead snake in the mailbox. Was it A, placed there by a neighborhood prankster, B, placed there by a member of the Snake Protection League trying to raise social consciousness, or C, the man fired a couple of days before? I'm going to say B. I'm just kidding. (laughs) C. You will rarely fail to place people in the most likely category and you frame the choice between contrasting options. This may seem obvious, but it is a powerful assessment tool. Going back to the example we gave in part one of a woman putting groceries into a car in a parking garage. She's unapproached by a man. What is the man's motives? Is the man A, a member of a citizen volunteer group whose mission is to patrol underground parking lots in search of women to help? B, the owner of a supermarket chain looking for the star of his next national advertising campaign? Or C, a guy with some sexual interest in her? I'm going to guess C. Naomi, stars in national supermarket campaigns are made all the time. (laughs) Unrelated, but do you remember when our grandmother was driving through Indiana and saw a billboard with her face on it? Because, like, a senior living home had just taken her photo and slapped it on the billboard? I don't remember this now. Okay, I seem to recall this was a thing in our childhood. Okay. Our grandmother was a senior living care home (laughs) star. (laughs) Intuition, remember, intuition, remember, knows more about the situation than we are consciously aware of. 
In the parking lot, it knows when the woman first saw the man as opposed to when she first registered seeing him. It may know when he first saw her. It may know how many people are around. It knows about the lighting, about how sound carries, about her ability to escape or defend herself, and so on. Similarly, when assessing a fired employee, intuition knows how long he held on to resentments in the past. It remembers sinister statements he made that were followed by some unsolved vandalism, and it recalls his disconcerting story about getting even with a neighbor. Excuse me. The reason for creating three options is that it frees you from the need to be correct. You know that at least two of your options will be wrong, and this freedom from judgment clears a path to intuition. In practice, this turns out to be less an exercise in creativity than an exercise in discovery. What you may think you are making up, you are calling up. Many believe the process of creativity is one of assembling thoughts and concepts, but highly creative people will tell you that the idea, the song, the image was in them, and their task was to get it out, a process of discovery, not design. This was said most artfully by Michelangelo when asked how he created his famous statue of David. He said, it's easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. <laughs> Fair enough, Michelangelo. Fair enough. You're talking about the, the Ninja Turtle, right? Yes. He's also really into sculpting. Yes. Okay. Into pizza, saying cowabunga. Living in the sewer. nunchucks and uh, sculpting. Of course, these are all common characteristics <laughs> of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, so we're talking about violence, we're talking about psychopathic behavior, we're talking about evaluating risk, um, and now it's getting to predicting violence. So we predict the behavior of other human beings based on our ability to read certain signals that we recognize. In Desmond Morris's Body Talk, he describes the meaning of gestures and body movements and notes in which parts of the world various meanings apply. Amazingly, 66 of the signals are listed as being valid worldwide, universal to all being human beings in every culture on Earth. The majority of them are presented unconsciously. Everywhere in the world, the chin jutted forward is a sign of aggression, the head slightly retracted is a sign of fear, the nostrils flared while taking a sharp breath is a sign of anger. If a person anywhere on the planet approaches someone holding their arms forward with the palms facing down while making small downward movements, movements he means calm down. In every culture, stroking the chin means I am thinking. Just as these movements are unconscious, so is our reading of them usually unconscious. If I asked you to list just 15 of the 66 worldwide gestures of physical movements, you'd find it difficult, but you absolutely know them all and respond to each intuitively. Earlier, I mentioned the predictive language of dogs, which is all nonverbal. Desmond Morris has identified one of the often nonverbal parts of human language, but we have many others. Knowing the language of a given prediction is more important than knowing, understanding exactly what a person says. The key is to understand the meaning and the perspective behind and behind and the perspective beneath and behind the words people choose. When predicting violence, some of the languages include the language of rejection, the language of entitlement, the language of grandiosity, the language of attention seeking, the language of revenge, the language of attachment, and the language of identity seeking. Attention seeking, grandiosity, entitlement, and rejection are often linked. Think of someone you know who is always in need of attention, who cannot bear to be alone or just unheard. Few people like being ignored, of course, but to this person it will have a far greater meaning. Believing they deserve it, entitlement and grandiosity, knowing they need it, fear of rejection, and committed to being seen and listened to, attention-seeking, individuals might strongly resist a loss of attention. If the need in them is great enough and you be the judge, they might do some pretty extreme things to draw interest. In each prediction about violence, we must ask what the context, stimuli, and developments might mean to a person involved, not just what they mean to us. We must ask if the actor will perceive violence as moving him towards some desired outcome or away from it. The conscious and unconscious decision to use violence usually involves many mental and emotional processes, but they usually boil down to how a person perceives four fairly simple issues, 
justification, alternatives, consequence, and ability. My office abbreviates these elements as JACA, and as an evaluation, an evaluation of these often helps prevent violence. There's no moisture in my mouth. Drink. The coconut water? Oh, no. it, I realized that, like, while drinking it, like, while I took my last sip, it kind of just tastes like watered-down milk with ice in it. That's another good comparison. But That's there's enough. no ice in it. It just... It just feels like it has ice in it. It doesn't smell like anything. It's very interesting. Oh, it doesn't smell like V8? It does not smell like V8. Ew. It smells like old soy milk. <laughs> Coconut milk, man. Coconut water, man. Yeah, drink it fresh, y'all. So, JACA. Justification, alternatives, consequences, and ability. So the first question you should ask yourself is, does this person have a perceived justification, Naomi? Perceived justification can be as simple as being sufficiently provoked. Hey, you stepped on my foot. Or as convoluted as looking for an excuse to argue is with a spouse that starts a disagreement in order to justify an angry response. The process of developing and manufacturing justification can be observed. A person who is seeking to file justification for some action might move from what you've done angers me to what you've done is wrong. Popular justifications include the moral high ground of righteous indignation and more simple equation known by the biblical name, an eye for an eye. Anger is a very seductive emotion because it is profoundly energizing and exhilarating. Sometimes people feel their anger is justified by past unfairness. With the slightest excuse, they bring forth resentments unrelated to the present situation. You could say such a person has pre-justified hostility, more commonly known as having a chip on their shoulder. The degree of provocation, of course, in the eye of the provoked. John Monahan notes that how a person appraises an event may have a great influence on whether she, he or she ultimately responds to it in a violent manner. What he calls perceived intentionality is perhaps the clearest example of a person looking for justification. The example is, like, you didn't just bump into me. You meant to hit me. Perceived alternatives. Does the person perceive that they have available alternatives to violence that will move him towards an outcome he wants? Since violence, like any behavior, has a purpose, it's valuable to know the goal of the actor. For example, if a person wants his job back, violence is not the most effective strategy since it precludes the very outcome he seeks. Conversely, if he wants a revenge, violence is a viable strategy, though usually not the only one. Alternatives to violence might be ridicule, smear campaigns, lawsuits, or inflicting some other non-physical harm on the targeted person or organization. Knowing the desired outcome is the key. If the desired outcome is to punish someone, there might be many options. It is when he perceives no alternatives that violence is the most likely. More than anything, individuals fight because they have no choice. A person who feels there are no alternatives will fight even when violence isn't justified, even when the consequences are perceived as unfavorable, and even when the ability to prevail is low. Perceived consequences. How, a person, how does a person view the consequences associated with using violence? Before resorting to force, people weigh the likely consequences, even if unconsciously or very quickly. Consequences might be intolerable, such as for a person whose identity and self-image would be too damaged if he used violence. Context can change that, as the person who is normally passive becomes violent in a crowd or mob. Violence can be made tolerable by the support or encouragement of others. It is when consequences are perceived as favor favorable, such as for an assassin who wants attention and has little left to lose, that violence is likely. And then finally, perceived ability. Does the person believe they can successfully deliver the blows or bomb or bullet? People who have unsuccessfully used violence in the past have a higher appraisal of their ability to prevail using violence again. People with weapons or other advantages perceive a high ability to use violence. Now that's unfortunately a very important aspect of domestic violence. Because if someone's hit their significant other before, they're far more likely to see it as a solution in the future, yeah. right? It may take a while to get to the point where they feel comfortable hitting their significant other 
on a regular basis. But after they do it the first time, the likelihood of it happening again is much, much higher. Um, And so this is also why the greatest predictor for whether or not someone will kill their partner is whether or not they have used violence before. Because if they've already crossed that threshold, they've proven that they see violence as an ability that can resolve the situation. And so they may see escalation of that as a long-term solution, not a short-term one. For more information, go check out our episode on Why Does He Do That? A book report that I conducted and uh, very much enjoyed, but also cringed at every single time I read it. Um, Also, part one of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in order to make predictions, well, okay, before I get into that, um, you understand JACA. Perceived justification, perceived alternatives, perceived consequences, and perceived ability. If you're trying to figure out whether someone poses a threat, consider all four of those. It's possible you may need more information, but even like a basic knowledge of the situation can give you an understanding greater than what like your intuition might predict. Okay, so how do you evaluate like predictions? How do you evaluate the likelihood of success of any prediction and a way to predict the prediction? It can be done by measuring 11 elements. I'm not going to spend too much time on these because there's a lot, but the basic idea is there's 11 elements that go into a prediction in order to come up with something that's actually accurate. Like you can throw in as many variables as you want, but if it's coming from a place that's inaccurate to begin with, your final analysis is going to be bad too. So these 11 are, how measurable is the outcome you seek to predict? Will it be clear if it happens or does not happen? For example, imagine the predictive question is, will a bomb explode in the auditorium during a pro-choice rally? The outcome is measurable. Now, if the question is, will we have a good time on an upcoming trip to Hawaii? There may not be a clear understanding of like whether or not the outcome can be measured, right? So you need to figure out what is it that's at risk? Is it that this person could assault this individual? Is it that this person um, has clear violence, such as the death of someone in mind? Not, do I think this person has bad vibes, right? It needs to be measurable. Vantage is a person making the prediction in a position to observe the pre-incident indicators in context. For example, to predict what will happen between two quarreling people is valuable to have a vantage point from which you can see and hear them. Three, imminence. Are you predicting an outcome that might occur soon as opposed to some remote time in the future? Ideally, one predicts outcomes that might happen while they are still significant. Will someone attempt to harm Senator Smith next week is an easier predictive question to answer successfully than will someone attempt to harm Senator Smith in 30 years? Success is more likely for the first question because conditions next week will not be affected by as many intervening influences as conditions in 30 years will. Our best predictive resources are applied when outcomes might occur while they are still meaningful to us. Though perhaps harsh to Senator Smith, it might not matter much to people today if he is harmed in 30 years. Context. Damn. Is the context of that situation clear to the person making the prediction? Is it possible to evaluate the attendant conditions and circumstances, the relationship of parties and events to each other? Pre-incident indicators, or PINs. Are there detectable pre-incident indicators that will reliably occur before the outcome is predicted? This is the most valuable of the elements. If one were predicting whether a governor might be the object of an assassination attempt at a speech, pre-incident indicators could include the assassins jumping on stage with a gun, but that is too recent a PIN to be very useful. The birth of the assassin is also a pin, but is too dated to be valuable. Although both of these events are critical intersections on the map of this particular prediction, one hopes to be somewhere between the two, between the earliest possible detectable factor and those that occur an instant before the act. Useful pins for assassination might include an assassin trying to learn the governor's schedule, developing a plan, purchasing a weapon, keeping a diary, or telling people, quote, something big is happening. 
So you have to find reliable pre-incident indicators, but they also must be detectable. Someone having an idea isn't something that you can detect. Something big is happening. (laughs) (laughs) Experience. Does the person making the prediction have experience with the specific topic involved? A lion tamer can predict whether or not a lion will attack more accurately than I can because he has experience. He can even do a better job if he's experienced with both possible outcomes, lions that don't attack, and lions that do. Comparable events. Can you study or consider outcomes that are comparable, though not necessarily identical to the one being predicted? Objectivity. Is the person making the prediction objective enough to believe that either outcome is possible? People who believe only one outcome is possible have already completed the prediction. With a simple decision to make a decision... Before the full range of predictive predictive tests have been completed, they've hit the wall of their intuitive ability. Asked to predict whether a given employee will act violently, the person who believes that kind of thing never happens is not the right choice for the job. People only apply all their predictive resources when they believe either outcome is possible. Investment. To what degree is the person making the prediction invested in the outcome? How much do they care? Does he or she have the reason to want the prediction to be correct? If I ask you right now to predict whether or not I'll oversleep tomorrow, you won't bring your best predictive resources to the question because you don't care. If, however, you're relying on me to pick you up at the airport early tomorrow morning, your prediction will be far better. Replicability. Is it practical to test the exact issue being predicted by trying it first elsewhere? As to predictive water in a pot will boil when heated, you need to not heat this water to improve the prediction. You can test the issue, replicate it exactly by heating other water first. It is a low-cost experiment for a low-stakes prediction. Knowledge. Does the person making the prediction have accurate knowledge about the topic? Unless it is relevant and accurate, knowledge can be the sinking ship the fool insists is seaworthy because knowledge often masquerades as wisdom. If a corporate executive has knowledge that most perpetrators of workplace violence are white males between 35 and 50, he might ignore someone's bizarre behavior because the employee does not fit the profile. So, um, those are the ways you kind of assess situations and determine if danger is involved. And though the examples he's giving are about like corporate clients that he's utilized, the same applies to relationships too, Naomi. This is after intuition is involved, correct? Um, I think this is a way of reassessing. If your intuition alerts you to something, but you're not sure what it is, then go through this process to try to better understand why you're being alerted to this by your intuition. And even if none of your intuitive abilities indicate something's wrong, you could use this to potentially assess if people around you are risks. And I think, you know... A good example might be online dating. Um, We discussed in the first part how in online dating, you don't have a long time to learn about people. It's a very quick first impression in their profile. Then maybe, you know, a couple days of sending text messages back and forth before you choose to meet someone in public. And it's easier for someone to fake being a good person for that period of time than someone who's like dating within a small community as it used to be back in the past. So... I would say it's more important than ever to utilize your kind of intuitive ability to draw conclusions. Is this person in the dating profile posing with large quantities of guns? Um, Or fish. Or fish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Does it seem based upon their profile that they respect or don't respect women? Um, Does it seem like there's someone who's part of a gang or utilizes violence? Uh, do they like media that has misogynistic messages? I'm not saying all of these are perfect predictors, but they can help form a better assessment of whether or not this is someone you might want to go on a date with. Yes. Um, the other important thing that he brings up on page 118 is context is very, very important in predictions. Uh, we underestimate how much context makes up whether or not our intuition is actually working. 
So an example he gives is a list of words. Skin, peel, blood, mutilated, rip, warning, kill, bomb. So if someone's like reading letters that their client's been sent and they come across those words, they might be a little concerned. But what if you were reading a passage in a book and it was like, this whole car trip, I was cold right down to my skin. The wind would rip along so hard, I thought it would peel the roof off. And here's a warning. Don't ever travel with relatives. Blood may be thicker than water, but trying to kill time listening to Uncle Harry's mutilated jokes. Bomb! Was just too much. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think that's a good example. Another is, look at this list of words. Tidy, pretty, flowers, beautiful, welcome. Tidy up your affairs and buy some pretty flowers because God has ordered me to take you to his beautiful place where he's anxious to welcome you. Number of times I've said that to women. (laughs) Okay, and then here's an example of a letter he actually assessed for a client. As I was walking with you yesterday, the sheer grace of your body thrilled me. Your beauty gives me a starting point for appreciating all other beauty in a flower or a stream. I sometimes cannot tell where you left off and the beauty of nature begins, and all I want is to feel your body and share my love with you. That's a nice sentiment, maybe a little abrupt if you've just met the person, Um, but context makes it important because the context is the letter was sent by a 50-year-old man to a 10-year-old daughter of a neighbor. Ew. The man moved soon after we interviewed him and now is in prison for a predictable offense, repeatedly propositioning an underage girl to have sex with him. The phone message, hi honey, it's me, might all by itself communicate a terrible threat if this is the voice of an ex-husband who a woman has tried to avoid by fleeing to another state and changing her name. So the point he's trying to make is context is much more important to predictions than content, and this truth relates to safety in some significant ways. Um, it's important to understand like whether or not the situation you're in, you have enough context to figure out whether or not danger does or does not exist. Um, I, I think that's important because sometimes you can be signaled that certain things like might be a problem, but unless you understand like the ins and outs of the situation, it's difficult to assess. I talked in the first episode about moving to a new house and hearing like things that go bump in the night around your house. Your body doesn't know whether or not the creaking of the house is just the house settling at night or someone on the roof. And so it can be really anxious. And it's or, difficult a to sleep. or a ghost. Or a ghost. Um, but, but the point is you need to have the context of that situation in order to make an informed decision about the dangers. And over time, as you gain more context, you become a lot more um, willing to, you know, put up with that more accepting of the situation, if that makes any sense. Okay. So we've talked about the elements of um, prediction. Uh, we've talked about violence. We've talked about the role of context. He does have an interesting side note about extortion. It doesn't naturally fit into these other sections, but I feel might be useful. Um, The reason I thought it might be useful is uh, revenge porn's a big thing these days. Um, Individuals will, you know, either send naked photos of themselves to their partners, their partners will beg them for them and they'll eventually give up, Um, or uh, they'll be, you know, photographed without their knowledge. And so then, after they've broken up with this individual, they can be blackmailed by their former partner or someone else who's gotten a hold of these images, and they'll say, you know, unless you give me money, unless you send me more, I'm going to leak these to your friends and family. And that can be a really harrowing situation. 
On page 130, he talks about an example of a young film star whose rise to fame brought a call from a sleazy ex-boyfriend she hadn't heard from in years. Unless my client, and again, keep in mind, Gavin runs a business doing all this, unless my client gave him $50,000, he would reveal that she had had an abortion. The thought of this becoming known caused her great anxiety and thus enhanced the value of the threat. By the time she met with me, she hadn't slept a full night in a week. My counsel for managing such cases is always to begin with an organized appraisal of the threat. I asked my client to make a list of people she feared would react adversely if the information were made public. That's easy, she said. My parents. I don't want them to know. I asked that she consider calling her parents and telling them the information in her way rather than living with the dread that they would learn it in his way or a tabloid's way. I said she was the only person in the world who could determine the value of the threat. Disclosing the harmful information itself is so radical an idea that most victims of extortion never even consider it. But within 10 minutes, my client made her difficult decision, called her parents, and killed the threat. She got off the phone visibly lighter and more powerful. I came here willing to do anything to stop him from revealing that secret. Now, I'm not willing to do anything at all because I don't care what he says. My client paid nothing, and the man never revealed his information anyway. I have a few cases a year just like this one. Extortion is a crime of opportunity usually committed by amateurs who tend to first try the most roundabout approach. You know, I saw you on the Emmys the other night, and you're doing well and everything, making so much money, and I was thinking about how beautiful you looked in those photos we took that time in Mexico. Because extortion is a bit awkward for the neophyte, he wants his victim to jump in and make it easy by saying, I'd be glad to help you out money-wise, but I wonder could I get those photos back? I'd hate to see them become public. Victims often try to appease extortionists, but those efforts just allow them to retain the undeserved mantle of a decent person. I suggest that clients compel the extortionist to commit on his sleaziness, which puts him on the defensive. Don't let him simply flirt with his lowness. Make him marry it by saying those ugly words. I ask victims to repeat, I don't understand what you're getting at until the extortionist states it clearly. Many extortionists can't do it and they either stumble around the issue or abandon their bad idea altogether. Making them explicitly state the extortion also helps clarify whether he's motivated by greed or malice, and this provides a roadmap to the desired outcome. Though sometimes difficult, it is important to be polite to the extortionist because he may be looking for justification to do the hurtful thing he threatens. With the amateur, sinking so low is difficult, and believe it or not, it's a very vulnerable time for him. Don't misread this as sympathy. It's just wise not to kick the guy around emotionally because if he gets angry, that empowers him. So, the takeaway here is if someone's threatening to leak nudes, you should probably inform the people you most care about knowing, hey, this sleaze bag is, you know, trying to send out nudes of me. It may be possible you might get some in your inbox. I apologize, uh, but that's just the situation I'm in right now. But those are my titties. Well said. <laughs> um, but then also, if you are engaging with someone who's trying to coerce you, whether for money, for the intent of blackmailing you and getting more naked photos, even just trying to coerce you into sex, it's important to have them confront that head on. Make it explicit what they're trying to kind of awkwardly fumble through. Does that all seem fair? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for this side note. I'm going to get back to the, the main meat of this. <laughs> okay. So we're skipping ahead. Um, he talks about um, identifying factors in the workplace, if there are workplace threats. This is like confined in, in this narrative to the workplace, but I feel it also applies to relationships as well. And so he makes it clear, look, you know, I'm, I'm giving you this information about worrying trends you might see as a way of like predicting workplace violence. You shouldn't presume that just because you see a couple of these that there could be a threat. It's important to assess it within the context of the situation and like the more you know about an individual. But he does say, look, if you see a bunch of these, this is when you should be concerned. Um, so bad behaviors or bad 
predictors could be things such as inflexibility. An employee who resists change is rigid and unwilling to discuss ideas contrary to their own. Imagine the same in a partner. A partner who resists change is rigid and unwilling to discuss a perspective outside of their own. Weapons. He has obtained a weapon within the last 90 days or has a weapons collection or makes jokes or frequent comments about weapons. You could imagine the same being a problem with a partner. Sad. He is sullen, angry, or depressed. That's an acronym. Sullen, angry, depressed. Chronic anger is an important predictor of more than just violence. People who experience strong feelings of anger are at increased risk of heart disease. Such people place others at risk and are at risk themselves. Accordingly, chronic anger should never be ignored. Signs of depression include changes in weight, irritability, suicidal thoughts and references, hopelessness, sadness, and a loss of interest in previously enjoyable activities. Hopelessness. He's made statements like, What's the use? I've got no future. Nothing ever changes anyway. Pessimism is an important predictor of problems, just as optimism is an important predictor of success. Identification. He identifies with or even praises other perpetrators of workplace violence. He refers to, jokes about, or is fascinated with news stories about major acts of violence. In the same way, if you have an intimate partner who is interested in following individuals who commit acts of violence and potentially even idolizes them, that could be a worrying factor. Okay, but you got to also think about the perspective of, like, how would you take that into perspective now with women that follow, like, crime podcasts? I, I would say the context matters, right? Like, just one of these isn't necessarily indicative. It's when you have multiple of them all at once is when you should start freaking out. What I'm trying to say is all women are secretly serial killers. What I'm saying is all guys like the Joker, and we shouldn't be judged for all liking the Joker. Stop bringing the Joker into every single conversation. Well, the fact that Heath Ledger's The Joker made a hologram appearance in that Batman movie that got leaked this week, I thought was just a mark of of intelligence and uh, really cinematography. Yeah. Really, really is raising, I think the, the, the debate about whether or not comic book films can truly be art. <laughs> um, coworker fear coworkers are afraid of or apprehensive about him. Does the individual you're dating have friends or people he works with who are afraid of him time? That's also an acronym. Threats, intimidations, manipulations, or escalations being used by this individual towards management or coworkers. Paranoia. They feel others are out to get him, that unconnected events are related, that others conspire against him. Can you see how all this can be applied to having a partner? Yep, yep, yep Criticism. Yep. He reacts adversely to criticism, shows suspicion of those who criticize him, refuses to consider the merits of any critical observation about his performance or behavior. Blame. He blames others for the results of his own actions. Crusades. He has undertaken or attached himself to crusades or admissions at work. Um, ladies, if your significant other is dedicated to the crusade of January 6th, uh, look elsewhere. <laughs> they dress up as a Native American-inspired shaman uh, to wage war on the U.S. government. Um, He's doing three years in prison. Cool dude. Yeah. Uh, Arizona local. Oh, Love that's that dude. Nice. I kept seeing him at protests in 2019-2020, but I thought he was like for climate change, so for cl- anti-climate change. <laughs> Unreasonable expectations. He expects elevation, long-term retention, and apology being named the winner in some dispute or being found right. Naomi, have you been in relationships where individuals expect to always be correct? I don't want to talk about it. Fair enough. (laughs) Naomi's being awfully quiet during this. (laughs) Grievance. He has a grievance pending or has a history of filing unreasonable grievances. Police encounters. He has had recent police encounters, including arrests, or has a history that includes behavioral offenses. 
media. There have recently been news stories on workplace violence or other major acts of violence. Press reports on these subjects often stimulate others who identify with the perpetrators and the attention they got for their acts. Major incidents of workplace violence tend to come in clusters, with perpetrators often referring to those who preceded them in the news. Focus. He has monitored behavior, activities, performance, or coming and going with other employees, though it's not his job to do so. He has maintained a file, a dossier, another employee, or he's recently stalked someone in or out of the workplace. Since nearly half of all stalkers show up where their victims work, companies are wise to learn about this dynamic. And then contact. If he was fired, he has instigated and maintained contact with current employees. He refuses to let go and appears more focused on the job he just lost than finding other employment. While no single pin can carry a prediction and not all serious cases will contain the entire list, these are some of the warning signs to be alert to. Most of us know or have known people with a few of these characteristics, but if you work with someone who has many, that is a matter for further attention. So Naomi, these, again, I feel can be applied just as well to personal relationships, friends, significant others. Um, It's not just workplace violence. It's all individuals who might wish to do you harm. Uh, So if, ladies, men listening, you find yourself in a situation like this, um, yeah, seriously reevaluate. Consider the context of these and how many of them appear on a list. Okay, we're getting close now, Naomi. What are we doing time-wise? My God, 48 minutes in. Where does the time go? Where does the moisture in my mouth go? I feel like half of it we were just describing really poorly the new Batman movie that got leaked. Naomi, it's it's the only thing that's been on my mind all week. You know how I idolize that Joker fella. <laughs> okay, um, other general signals uh, for actual like spousal violence and abuse uh, brings up on page one ninety nine. Um, what's interesting is Mr. De Becker actually was on the prosecution team for the O.J. Simpson trial. No. Yeah, and he testified about, like, the signals in O.J. and Nicole's relationship that yeah. indicated that O.J. had a ability to do violence. Um, and this is interesting, too, because he actually, like, brings up the fact that at some point, like, O.J. and Nicole were in a parking lot, and he pushed her out of a moving vehicle, and the officers that showed up were like, are you sure he really pushed you out of the vehicle? And were, like, constantly second-guessing her. Yeah, because it's O.J. Simpson. Exactly. And so he's like, this was a serious problem where it's difficult to assess, like, the impact celebrities have because everyone idolizes I'd like to be clear that O.J. Simpson was famous before he killed his wife. Uh, He was famous uh, as a football player, and uh, not many people recognize him as a football player anymore. They just remember him as the guy that now makes TikToks after being in jail, well, not being in jail for killing Mm -hmm. his wife, so. Uh, I recall we saw a movie in, like, uh, growing up, early 2000s, I think it was from, like, 1980s, of the government attempting to film a fake moon landing and OJ Simpson was one of the actors and we were like, wait, OJ Simpson also acted (laughs) crazy. And I think looking back like 30 years from now, people will be like, John Cena was in movies or no, John Cena wrestled. That's what they'll say. John Cena wrestled. No, no, he's in all the movies. He's in that new Batman movie. Or like the rock. Or, or The Rock, yeah. yeah. I, I, I sometimes forget that The Rock had a long wrestling career before he got yeah. all jacked and swole and movie. <sighs> okay, anyways, journal signals of abuse in relationships. Does the woman have intuitive feelings that she is at risk? At the inception of the relationship, did the man accelerate the pace, prematurely placing on the agenda such items as commitment, living together, and marriage? Does the male, and this is a gendered list, but unfortunately a lot of abuse is done by males rather than females, and the ways I think females abuse is different in many ways than a lot of what men do. 
does the man resolve conflict with intimidation, bullying, and violence? Is he verbally abusive? Does he use threats and intimidation as instruments of control or abuse? Does he break or strike things in anger? Does he use symbolic violence, such as tearing a wedding photo or mooring a face in a photo? Was he a batterer of a woman in a prior relationship? Has he used alcohol or drugs with adverse effects, such as memory loss, hostility, or cruelty? Does he cite alcohol or drugs as an excuse or explanation for hostile or violent conduct? That was the booze talking, not me. I got so drunk, I was crazy. Does his history include police encounters for behavioral offenses? Has there been more than one incident of violent behavior? Does he use money to control the activities, purchase, and behavior of his wife and partner? Does he become jealous of anyone or anything that takes her time away from the relationship? And does he keep her on a tight leash, requiring her to account for her time? Does he refuse to accept rejection? Does he expect the relationship to go on forever? Perhaps using phrases like, together for life, always, no matter what. That's always what bothers me about wedding vows, where it's like, People never change. You will always remain the same way. I will always love you regardless of the situation. You can do no wrong. The end. And then they get mad at them. Like the, the man gets mad at his partner for after having children for gaining like 10 pounds. Uh, yes. After and the then, wedding vows when she gains 10 pounds immediately. No, no, no. What I'm saying is after she has children, I just heard I, there's been a large situation. This guy got on a podcast and he was like, if my wife gains uh too many pounds and then refuses to get uh, go back to the gym after she uh has the child i'm gonna leave her something like that everyone has a perspective on it wait wait back up a second women can gain weight i'm still coming to terms with the fact they can fart (laughs) damn what a world uh does the individual project extreme emotions onto others even when there is no evidence that would lead a reasonable person to perceive them do they minimize incidents of abuse? Do they spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about his wife, partner, and derive as much of his identity from being a husband, lover, etc.? Does he try to enlist his wife's friends or relatives in a campaign to keep or recover the relationship? Has the individual inappropriately surveilled or followed his wife or partner? Does he believe others are out to get him? Does he believe that those around his partner or wife dislike him and encourage her to leave? Does he resist change and is described as inflexible and unwilling to compromise? Does he identify with or compares himself to violent people in films, news stories, fiction, or history? Does he characterize the violence of others as justified? Does he suffer mood swings or is sullen, angry, or depressed? Does he consistently blame others for problems of his own making and refuse to take responsibility for the results of his actions? Does he refer to weapons as instruments of power, control, or revenge? Are weapons a substantial part of his persona? Does he have a gun or he talks about, jokes about, reads about, or even collects weapons? Does he use male privilege as justification for his conduct, treating a woman as a servant, making all the big decisions, and acting as the master of the house? Has he experienced or witnessed violence as a child? And does his wife or partner fear he will injure or kill him? Has she discussed this with others or has made plans to be carried out in the event of her death, such as designated someone to care for children? Fun list. Yeah. With this list and all you know about intuition and prediction, you can now help prevent America's most predictable murders. Literally. If you encounter something like this, refer the woman to a battered woman's shelter, if for nothing else, than to speak with her to for her to speak to someone who knows about what she's facing in her life and in herself. Refer the man to a battered woman's shelter, and they will be able to suggest programs for him. When there is violence, report it to the police. This list reminds us that before our next breakfast, another 12 women will be killed. Mothers, sisters, daughters. In almost every case, the violence that preceded the final violence was a secret kept by several people. This list can say to women who are in that situation that they must get out. It can say to police officers who might not arrest... Um, that they must arrest to doctors who might not notify that they must notify. 
It can say to prosecutors that they must file charges, and it can say to neighbors who might ignore violence that they must not. It can also speak to men who might recognize themselves, and that is meaningful. After Christopher Darden's closing argument in the Simpson trial, co-prosecutor Scott Gordon and I joined him in his office. We read faxes from around the country sent by victims of domestic violence, but were equally moved by messages from abusive men, one of which, who, one of which read, You may have just saved my wife's life, for as I listened to you describing the Simpsons' abuse, I recognized myself. Unlike some murders, spousal homicide is a crime that can strike with conscience. Fun, fun stuff. Couple other notes on abuse, Naomi, because this, this podcast hasn't been Debbie Downer enough. Like a battered child, battered women get a powerful feeling of overwhelming relief when an incident occurs. They become addicted to that feeling. The abuser is the only person who can deliver moments of peace by being his better self for a while. Thus, the abuser holds the key to the abused person's feeling of well-being. The abuser delivers the high highs that book in the low lows, and the worse the bad times get, the better the good times are in contrast. All this is in addition to the fact that a battered woman is shell-shocked enough to believe each horrible incident may be the last. No amount of logic, unfortunately, can usually move a battered woman, whose persuasion requires emotional leverage, not statistics or moral arguments. In many efforts to convince women to leave violent relationships, I've seen their fear and resistance firsthand. I recall a long talk with Janine, a 33-year-old woman of two, wife of two, mother of two, sorry, who showed me photos the police had taken of her injuries after one of the frequent beatings she received. She was eager to tell me her husband's abuse, but just as eager to make excuses for him. Though the most recent beating had left her with three broken ribs, she was going back to him again. I asked what she would do if her teenage daughter was beaten up by a boyfriend. Well, I'd probably kill the guy, she said, but one thing's for sure, I'd tell her she could never see him again. What's the difference between you and your daughter, I asked. Janine had a fast explanation for every aspect of her husband's behavior, but had no answer for her own, so I offered her one. The difference is that your daughter has you, and you don't have you. If you don't get out soon, your daughter won't have you either. This was resonant to Janine because of its truth. She really didn't have a part of herself, the self-protective part. She'd come out of her own childhood of it already shaken, and her husband had beaten out of her completely. She did, however, retain the instinct to protect her children. It was, for, it was for them that she was finally able to leave. Okay, there's one last part of this abuse that I think can raise some eyebrows, and I think it's important to listen to this fully before you judge. I don't like how he phrases this, but I understand what he's saying. Though leaving is not an option that seems available to many battered women, I believe the first time a woman is hit, she's a victim, and the second time, she's a volunteer. Invariably, after a television interview or speech in which I say this, I hear from people who feel I don't understand the dynamic of battery, that I don't understand the syndrome. In fact, I have a deep and personal understanding of the syndrome, but I never pass up the opportunity to make clear that staying is a choice. Of those who argue that it isn't, I ask, is it a choice when a woman finally does leave, or is there some syndrome to explain leaving as if it is too also voluntarily? I believe it is critical for a woman to view staying as a choice, for only then can leaving be viewed as a choice and an option. Does that make sense or still feel kind of victim-blaming? It's the 90s when this book was... That's a fair point. I, I don't know if an individual uh, would write a book and phrase it in such a way now. But I, I do think that's important. You have to approach incidents of domestic violence and when talking to individuals, frame it as a choice to make it clear that not leaving is just as much of an option as leaving. You can't 
pretend that it's you know only one logical outcome because we'll constantly be coming up with excuses about why no staying is a better option for the kids for themselves for the relationship etc <sighs> fun 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 um, I do like this section on page 206. Um, apparently, Mr. DeBecker actually has started a couple of, like, women's domestic violence charities and, like, helps fund some of them throughout the United States. Um, he talks about how we as a society must provide a place for domestically abused individuals to go. In Los Angeles County, where 11 million people live, there are only 420 battered women's shelter beds. On any given night, 75% of the beds in battered women's shelters are occupied by children. In Los Angeles, there's a hotline which automatically connects callers to the nearest shelter. Through that number, established by Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti, battered women are taught how to get out safely. They learn to make duplicates of car keys and identification papers, how to hide these items from the husbands, how to choose the best time to run, and how not to be tracked when they escape into the modern-day underground railroad that shelters have become. I believe so strongly in the value of this hotline that my company funds it. I mention it here because every city in America needs such a number and needs to get it prominently displayed in phone booths, phone books, gas stations, schools, and hospital emergency rooms. An 800 number like ours, answered by people who have been there and understand that dilemma, is often more likely to be used than the alternative number, which I also recommend, 911. The reason for some women's reluctance to call the police is, in his example, expressed by the case of Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, the example that I cited earlier is, you know, when OJ pushed Nicole out of a moving car in a parking lot, a police officer who appeared on the scene told Simpson to take your wife home. Another incident, well after they were divorced, Simpson broke down the door in Nicole's home. A responding police officer told Nicole his conclusion of what had happened. No blows were thrown. He didn't throw anything at you. We don't have anything other than a verbal altercation. Nicole responded correctly, breaking and entering, I'd call it. Well, the officer countered, it's a little different when the two of you have a relationship. It's not like he's a burglar. Absolutely wrong. It's very much like he's a burglar, and it was breaking, entering, and trespassing. After assuring O.J. Simpson they keep the incident as quiet as legally possible, the officers left. Um, now, he does say that the LAPD and the county sheriffs in L.A. are now leading the nation in new ways to manage domestic violence cases, but I did find this interesting to um, talk about the benefits of police while also discussing some of the times they've let individuals down. I love how, as a society we are all aware that OJ murdered his wife, yet he still did not go to prison for murdering his wife. Well, he wrote that really compelling book, If I Did It, not I Did It, you know? Clearly it's a hypothetical, Naomi. And then Netflix put out a whole, like, docuseries about it, and then Ross from Friends was Rob Kardashian in the case. And was like, oh, God. Yeah, he was the lawyer. Um, yeah, I don't have much else. There's other stuff in this book that's important. Uh, he does talk about how restraining orders can be kind of dumb because they give people a false sense of security. And he says, look, if someone wants to commit violence against you, a piece of paper will not stop them. Yeah. Um, a piece of paper that says stay away will only work on someone who's rational and has little emotionally invested in the relationship. Like if someone randomly at work got a restraining order against me, I wouldn't be like, I'm going to murder that person. I'd be like, that's weird. I don't understand why, but I'm also not going to pursue it. Yeah. But an individual for whom like their ego was important and being perceived by others as like safe and awesome was important. They might go after that person then. And so like, if you're in an abusive relationship, don't rely solely on the law to protect you. Cause there's so many times when the law is not able to do that. I think that people imagine, um, uh, restraining orders as like a sort of, sort of like uh, tethered uh, 
cord between mm-hmm. you and that person and that amount of space cannot get smaller because yeah. of their standing order but it's not actually um that way because people can just break in your house and murder you sure and it's not just him like talking about that and like coming up with some choice examples uh he cites one study on page 211 75 percent of spousal murders happen after a woman leaves so choice the inciting incident is estrangement and not argument that leads to the worst of violence Uh, Also on page 215, the San Diego District Attorney's Office studied 179 stalking cases, and about half the victims who had sought restraining orders felt their cases were worsened by them. The United States Department of Justice found in a research that restraining orders were ineffective in stopping physical violence. Uh, They were only helpful in cases in which there was no history of violent abuse. A more recent study done for the Department of Justice found that more than a third of women had continuing problems after getting restraining orders. That means favorably almost two-thirds did not have continuing problems, but while only 2.6% of respondents were physically abused right after getting the orders, where they were recontacted six months later, that percentage had more than tripled. Reports of continued stalking and psychological abuse had also increased dramatically after six months. This indicates that the short-term benefits of restraining orders are greater than the long-term benefits. Now, he's not saying, he says this clearly, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying restraining orders never work. Most court orders, you know, do work and cases do improve. But the problem is, like, there's so many situations where individuals are too emotionally invested to follow the letter of the law, and that's the situation he would like to prevent. (sighs) Can you end on a happy statistic? Uh, there are no there, there are no happy statistics in this book. Maybe. How many koala bears were born this year? <laughs> Did you just pull these up? Let me look up. Happy statistics. End on a happy note. Someone's eating ice cream for the first time today. Statistics. Isn't that happy? Like little babies. Yeah. They're like smiling. It um fourteen percent of um I'm, that's a really sad. Statistic. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, oh, 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 I have a happy statistic. Okay, 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 okay. Every year, hundreds of new trees grow because squirrels forget that they buried their nuts. Two, there's a basketball court on the top floor of the U.S. Supreme Court building. It's known as the highest court in the land. (laughs) This feels like a bad pun. Even if you've never been able to witness it themselves, even if they've never been able to witness it themselves, blind people smile when they're happy. Smiling is a basic human instinct. Aww. Cows have best friends, and they tend to spend most of their time together. That's pretty cute. Okay, okay. Uh, let's let's wrap this up, Naomi. Um, I did mention at the start of part one uh, that I was a little bit critical of this book, and the reason, which I want to bring up now that you have the context of listening to me ramble about it for a long period, is that. I think it's a valuable tool that presents the information in a questionable way. And what I mean by that is um, I think someone reading this book or listening to a summary of it might come across with the idea that the world is an insanely dangerous place that everyone wants to murder you in. And that one possible solution is to increase police presence and security presence in order to combat all these terrifying dangers. Yes. Now, I don't feel DeBecker is saying that. At multiple points in the book, he's criticizing police officers. At multiple points in the book, he, like, recognizes the validity of women's concerns while also not infantilizing them, which I think is important. Um, And he also, like, gives examples of, like, relationships across cultures, which indicates, like, a degree of awareness that a lot of individuals, I think, lack. Um, 
he also says that we're really bad at assessing risk in the beginning and gives some examples of people underestimating like how dangerous cars are. Um, but the problem is there's this unrelenting assault on the senses of anecdotes about people who were brutally raped or murdered after like situations with people who seem normal but turned out to be crazy. And again, the impression I feel that gives is the world is terrifying. You need to constantly have your haunches raised and you need, you know, guns and tools in order to resolve this. Um, and so the reason I bring all this up is he says, trust your intuition. And this kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, and I can't help but think after all the stuff that happened in 2020, that uh, part of the problem with modern policing is that they're trained with a killer mindset. And another part might be thinking that everyone is a threat and trying to find characteristics of them that fit the mold discussed in this book. Not thinking to themselves, oh, if they have one or two of these characteristics, they may be a threat, but thinking having these characteristics makes them a threat, if that makes sense. Um, And so my concern is, especially if this is attempted to be taught to people, it's probably going to be in the form of like a PowerPoint presentation done in 15 minutes to half an hour, where they just very quickly gloss through this. And like, oh, yeah, if you see these signs, you should be worried about it. Yeah. Um, Here's a list of things that potentially predict spousal abuse. I don't know. And that's a big issue when you think that, like, there's a lot of people who might have these characteristics or display potentially warning signs like overly familiar attitudes or, like, attempts to strike up conversations with strangers who pose no risk to them, as we discussed multiple times throughout the book. Um, For instance, super awkward people who don't really know how to deal socially, people from different cultural backgrounds where, like, being physically physically interacting with people is considered more acceptable. Uh, People who have mental conditions, all of them might be perceived as threats if someone's received a very bare bones version of this training. Um, So it's my opinion that like he could do a far better job at the end of the book talking about how much we need to improve our social support systems. He does spend some time talking about how good shelters are and like how he's personally invested in them. But I think he could like spend twice the time discussing like all the benefits they give and then how it's not just shelters as a way of like escaping relationships, but also the need for better education in schools and more like money being put towards teaching children how to recognize these signs and themselves not be abusers. Um, maybe that goes a step too far. Maybe this isn't something that he like actually considers important, but that would seem to be, to be the logical outcome of like all the stuff he's talking about. And I'm a little disappointed. Didn't go into more detail. there. No. And and that's why I'm such a big proponent proponent of putting sexual education back in schools everywhere, because a part of actual good sexual education is learning consent and consent bleeds into literally every factor of your life. Consent's about blood guys. If your sex doesn't have blood in it, yeah, I need to head out. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, sorry, I'm not trying to trivialize what you're saying. The couch statistic just made me so it's happy. It's a pretty good couch. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that kind of had that on my mind is the fact that state legislatures everywhere in America right now are trying to pass bills that would ban, like, childhood sex education. And by that, I mean, like, telling six-year-olds that gay people exist. Yep. Which seems kind of important and potentially avoids your parents doing that thing that they didn't want to do back in the day, which was like, how do I explain two men kissing to my kid? Uh, have someone else do it? <laughs> like, easy peasy. Sometimes men like to kiss each other. Big deal. And they always do it like that. That's the most annoying yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, if I have one criticism It's the kissy this, noises. It's the kissy noises. Yeah. Yeah, which I've definitely never done with Lauren. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> like we're, we're Muppet characters. Len just gets really close to my ear and he's like, 
Ah. Which essentially I just did to whoever's listening to this podcast. This is now an ASMR podcast. It's an ASMR. Okay, we're going to have an episode where we just take both of the microphones and one of us is like doing like soft seductive noises and they're positioned like at the left and right ears. It's going to be great now. Okay, so that was the gift of fear. Hopefully our listeners have found it useful. Hopefully we've found it useful. Again, I would strongly urge that you pick up a copy if you found any of this helpful because he goes into a lot more detail and it's a good desk reference in my book. Yeah, I would say that it's a it's definitely a good uh, book to have on hand. I like to pick up books sometimes after like I've read them, like I like read them in class or something. Um, for a textbook, I've read a lot of fascinating books, not textbooks, but like actual books. My sister's a huge nerd. In my classes. And um, then I'll just pick up a copy regularly instead of just renting it and like hand it out to people. Um, I like to obviously give reference to our podcast and say, hey, listen to it if you don't have the um, uh, the patience to sit down and read a book. But I think it's always best to go and look at these resources firsthand. You know, if we wrote a book, we could hand that out to people. It would be about um, asthma and Calfax. Happy Calfax. Can we write a book on relationships just called Happy Calfax? Yeah. And then reference the first, I think the first chapter should just be the Lauren Cow story. That's that's a good that's a good callback. If you don't know what Naomi's talking about, you're not a true fan and you should feel bad. Yeah, exactly. Go check out our Lauren episode where we introduce Joel's boyfriend. Boyfriend? <laughs> Joel's girlfriend. Wow. <laughs> Joel's partner. Let's keep it very... Um, Naomi doesn't understand sex-based differences. <laughs> uh, it's been an ongoing What I was going to say, I was very distracted because I was thinking about you kissing men. <laughs> I was like, that's a weird thing to think about. Glad my sister spends so much time. We're definitely clipping that and using that as an um, What I wanted to say is in the next couple of weeks, we will be interviewing my uh, long-awaited boyfriend introduction. So, um, Who's been waiting for this? Me. <laughs> also, Len. I'm going to make you a star. Len, my boyfriend. Um, yeah, so we'll be, we'll be talking about that soon. So. I fully expect on air both of you to go. I think I started it because I just started going in his ear and then he just turned it into something. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you for listening to us be sexy and talk about domestic violence. We hope you have a great week. to make an impact this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception clinical breast examinations cervical cancer screenings pregnancy testing prenatal care testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections and abortions Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150 percent of the federal poverty level both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood, you could be too.